Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Good morning. Good, thank you. It's good to be with you all. My name is Aaron Elmore. I'm the lead pastor here at the Kirk. And this morning we are concluding our mercifully short uh, commitment series. We do this every fall. Uh, we don't apologize for it. We're excited to give you the opportunity to invest uh, in the life of the church and make a commitment for the next year. But it's also a good intentional time to teach about money and possessions. Is that something that's very relevant to everybody here? And so the truth is, most of us in the room are wealthy. We may not want to admit it, may not want to talk about it, because maybe that implies some kind of responsibility, but we are wealthy. Now, we hear about billionaires on TV, and we're like, I can't even count that high. I don't know how much money that is. If you stacked it in a room, how much space would it take up? That's a lot of money. What I have is not a lot of money. But according to some research that I read last year, I believe it to be credible, If your family makes $30,000 a year, I'm not going to assume that's everybody in the room, but I think probably most of us are are there or higher. If you make $30,000 a year, you're in the top 3% in the world. Top 3% if your family makes $30,000 a year. Now let's consider this historically. Most people today who are living a middle-class lifestyle have actually, by many measures, a much greater quality of life than even some of the wealthiest people just a few generations ago. So basically what it boils down to is we, living today in this time and place, are some of the most wealthy people to ever walk on planet Earth so far. Now why do I start with that? It is not to make you feel guilty or for you to feel shame. That doesn't do a whole lot of good for anybody. That doesn't motivate anyone in a healthy way. I tell you that, I remind you of that, because I know that you probably know that that's true, but I remind us that we are wealthy to put today's study of Scripture into context. Because Luke 18 is one of the places in Scripture where Jesus specifically addresses people like us, wealthy people. So here's the challenging truth. Friends, Jesus loves us so much that he specifically and repeatedly warns us about the dangers of wealth and greed and materialism. Jesus is very clear on this topic, and he challenges us, not just once, but numerous places in Scripture. So we should pay attention. Now, teaching on money and wealth and possessions is a point of emphasis in Luke's gospel. That's one of the reasons we've chosen this book for our focus in this series, Luke talks about money four times as much as Matthew or Mark. Now, being rich is never outright condemned. But Jesus is clear that being wealthy poses a significant challenge to our life of faith and Christian discipleship. Jesus draws a direct connection between the quantity of one's possessions and the difficulty of our discipleship. It's hard. It's a challenging story to read. This theme is significant in the teachings of Jesus because Jesus knows how much our hearts are wrapped around our stuff and our possessions and our wealth. There are few things in life with the power 
to draw human hearts away from God like money. So if I could characterize my sermon for you in just a really short statement, here's my heart this morning. My heart is that by the grace of God and the challenge and the conviction and the power of God's word speaking into our lives, that however much you hold tightly to your stuff, to your money, to your wealth, and that's going to be a little different for everybody in the room, but however tightly you are currently holding on to your things, I pray that by the grace of God, we would just let go a little bit more. That we would, we would see ourselves trusting more in the Father and seeing all that God has given us as an opportunity to be generous people who bless our neighbors for the glory of God. I know it's an area of my life where I can see improvement. And I believe that it is for you as well. And so that's my heart this morning, that God would help us to just let go of that control and see what God would do. So we're going to walk through this encounter that we've just read uh, between Jesus and the rich young ruler to see incredible challenge and comfort for us. First, the passage begins with a concern, a question. A certain ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question, I believe, is actually in response to a statement that Jesus has just made in the section that comes right before where we picked up our reading this morning. In verse 17, Jesus has just said another incredibly challenging statement. He said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will not enter it. And so I believe this rich man, having heard Jesus say that, thinks to himself, well, I don't have a lot in common with a little child. They don't have much power. I have a lot of power. They don't have any money. I have a lot of money. So his question is motivated, I think, a little bit by this statement. And so he's asking Jesus, basically, what will it take for someone like me, Jesus? Okay, you're saying we need to become like a little child to enter the kingdom, but what about me, rich, powerful person of status? So he addresses Jesus as good teacher. We don't know motivations, but I think maybe he's trying to flatter Jesus. Maybe he's hoping that Jesus will, in turn, call him a good man because apparently he thinks very highly of himself that he's kept all the commands since he was a child. And Jesus reinforces what he's already taught in this gospel, and that is that entrance into the kingdom of God comes only by God's grace. You can't earn it. You cannot be good enough. It can only be received by faith. This man assumes that he can know where he stands with God because of his measurable achievements. Jesus, I've done all of that. He joins the 99 of Luke 15 and the older brother and the Pharisee of Luke 18, all these people in the teachings of Jesus who were convinced they could earn God's favor. So in verse 21, he says, all of these things I've kept since I was a boy. So Jesus puts the man to a test to see if he has the most important attribute of kingdom life, to see if the man has faith. Specifically, a faith that is born out of trust and leads to surrender. Has he truly surrendered all of who he is to God? And so then Jesus presents the man with a challenge. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This man faces a difficult question. Will he prefer the things that the world can give to him 
or will he prefer what heaven can offer him? I don't think it's a test of works. I think it's a testing of the heart. It's an examination of his fundamental allegiance. Where is your heart really focused? I don't think we have to understand this as a test uh, with a universal instruction for all followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell everyone that he encounters, sell everything, give it to the poor, come and follow me. In fact, we know from Zacchaeus' story that comes just after this, Zacchaeus follows Jesus. He gives away half of all he has. Now, that's still a pretty radical thing to do. But it's not a universal legalistic command here. I think the point that Jesus makes over and over in Scripture is that if you're going to follow me, there will be sacrifice involved. There will be a sacrifice. For some, it will be family. For some, it will be relationships. For some, it may be a change in their job, a change in their way of life. For some, it may be to give up some kind of social status, to give up some of their possessions. But for all of us, we must be willing to go all in. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus is asking us, are you willing to surrender everything to follow me. Now, Jesus exhorts this man to go in a different direction with his wealth, but he does not accept the challenge of Jesus. His disposition changes. Tragically, the man reacts with sadness. And I think we see in verse 23 a conviction. It says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, notice the response of this man. I find this interesting. He doesn't get angry at Jesus. It's what you might expect. Or, I think if I were in the man's shoes, I would probably be a little defensive. That's not what he does. The man became sad. Very sad. Because he knew he had so much. I can't be sure, but I read that as conviction. I think he knew in that moment. He knew where his heart lied where the allegiance of his heart was. He knew he did not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Jesus had exposed that. Now let's remember, this is a real man. This is not a parable in this instance. It's a real encounter Jesus had with a man. We're not told what happens to this man after this. I hope that the seeds of faith were planted. I hope that the challenge comes around full circle in his life, but we just don't know what happens But his encounter represents for us a timeless test of the heart. It's an exposure of idolatry. Abraham, Peter, as I already mentioned, Zacchaeus, these are other examples of people who were put to the test. And though they weren't perfect people, they demonstrated by their response to God's challenge in their life that they were willing to surrender all and make obedience the central orientation of their heart. Now, I think it's tempting to approach a text like this and think, wow, this just seems so radical. You know, what do we do with this? This is one of those categories uh, of Scripture that I think it's tempting to say, you know, this is like, this is the crazy stuff Jesus said. That, you know, like maybe someday when I get radical, I'll start thinking about it, but I don't even want to deal with it. I don't know what to do. It just seems so radical. I think when we understand this story, I don't think Jesus is asking the man to be destitute. I don't want to diminish the radical nature of what Jesus is saying to him. Jesus knows what he needs. Jesus is not saying, be homeless, I need you to beg. No, I think Jesus is getting at his heart orientation. 
He knows how the man is going to respond, and he puts the challenge before him to reveal conviction in his heart. And here's the question, the heart-piercing question that we all have to ask ourselves when we read a story like this. If I was this man, it could be any of us, we're all relatively wealthy. If I was in this story and Jesus presented this challenge to me, how would I respond? That's a haunting question. It's really not a question I want to ask myself. How would I respond? Because the truth is, I know that I love money. I know that money and possessions and wealth has too strong of a hold in my life. I know that I trust too much in money. I'm an idolater. Welcome to the club. And then sometimes we just have to say stuff like that out loud to realize how profound it is. So what do we do with this? Well, when I read this story, I can tell you I am convicted. Convicted. That's an important word. Not condemned. I know that my status with God is not dependent on how healthy my relationship is with my stuff. I know that God is faithful even when I'm not faithful. I'm not condemned, but I'm convicted by a passage like this. I see potential for growth there. I know that there's a better version of myself that loves money less. I know that there's actually a better quality of life for myself if I would be willing to live into this radical, sacrificial nature of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I want that. So how do we respond to Jesus' warning about greed and wealth? Well, there's probably many ways that we can, but I think one very simple one is that we can simply give more away. Give more away. If Jesus says, beware about being greedy, beware about the dangers of wealth, if you have much, it can be difficult to radically receive the kingdom of God. What do we do with that? I think one of the things that we can do is try to give more away. Try to become more radically sacrificial. That's going to look different for all of us. Some of us have more margin than others. But I wonder what it would look like if we as the people of God began to embrace this identity of being radically sacrificial and people who are generous to those in our community, to leverage all that we have for the good of our neighbors to the glory of God. Because right now, to be honest, we're not doing that. Now, you may be, I, I don't know what your situation is, but Christians in general, on paper, self-reported information, we're not any more generous than our neighbors. We don't give radically more away than people who are not followers of Jesus. So when I hear that, I think, great, what should we do about it? Could we change that perception? And we can't change the perception for everybody, but we can change our own family. We can change our own community. And I wonder what it would look like. You know, there are many, there are many challenges facing the American church right now. And there are challenges that are outside of us coming at us, but I think sometimes we focus on those too much. What if one of the greater challenges that nobody wants to talk about in church to the American church is the fact that, honestly, we're just as greedy as the rest of the world. We're just as materialistic as the rest of the world. We're just as bound up in our stuff. I know I'm not going to get an amen to that. That's okay. <laughs> I think it could be a key component to revival in the church. 
So we're given a caution by Jesus, verse 24. Jesus looked at the man and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You may have heard an explanation of this particular passage that the eye of a needle was a point in a particular fence in Israel. That theory has kind of largely been debunked. We don't really know exactly when Jesus said the eye of the needle, if it was a metaphor or if he was being literal. But either way, I think the point of Jesus' metaphor is that it's really hard to be rich and to enter the kingdom of God. The eye of the needle is the smallest possible opening imagined. Smallest opening imaginable. How could a camel go through it, right? It's hyperbole. Jesus exaggerated? Yes, I think he did. He's saying it's really hard. So then the disciples think to themselves, okay, if that's the truth and it's really hard, then, and we're supposed to become like little children, and we're also not supposed to be attached to our worldly things, they're starting to add things up in their mind and they're thinking, wow, this is really hard. How can anyone receive eternal life? And this is where we get the comfort. Jesus comes back to grace. He says in verse 27, What is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, even the rich, even people who have a lot in this life, God can transform their heart. God can change them. We can be rich in worldly possessions and yet poor in spirit. We can be changed. We can be more like Jesus, but God is the one with the power to change human hearts. But only when we have a sense of detachment from the things of the world can we give our all to God and become fully kingdom-minded people. But then Jesus follows up that comfort with even more good news. He gives us his commitment. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. I find this fascinating how Jesus sort of lands the plane on this conversation. You would think at this point, as Jesus has challenged them about worldly possessions, he would give them an option and he would say, okay, here's your options. You can have a good life now or you can have a good life into eternity, but you can't have both. But that's not what Jesus does. He says you can actually have a good life now and a good life in the future, but we need to redefine what it means to live a good life. We've got to redefine those terms and what it means in this life as it relates to our possessions to live the good life is to be a generous person because we serve a generous God and we accurately reflect what our God is like when we become generous people. That's about more than our money. It's about our time, our talents, treasures, relationships, everything in our life. But we were created to be generous people. And sacrificial giving is the appropriate response to the sacrifice of Jesus for us. It's the natural response. We've been given so much. How could we be anything other than radically generous people? And after all, we trust that God will provide tomorrow so we can give away today. It's not saying don't plan, not saying don't be wise. But I think we've got a long way to go, a lot of us, before we would truly reach a level of generosity that would be considered radical, sacrificial, joyful. Those are all biblical terms for how we should give generously. Leaving all 
to follow the one who gives everything offers more blessing, not only in the next life, but in this one. And what Jesus gives us here is his commitment that, yes, as you follow me, there will be sacrifices. We're not all called to sacrifice the same things in the same measure, but it is a sacrifice to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up the cross, deny yourself, and follow me. There's a sacrifice involved in following Jesus. But Jesus commits to us here. He says, whatever you might give up to follow me pales in comparison to what you gain from following me. That's his commitment. In other words, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. You will not regret following Jesus and becoming a radically, sacrificially generous person. You won't regret it. So I think it's part of what God is doing here among us. He wants us to be a church that is for our city, that is for the world, that is radical in giving our lives away for the sake of the gospel mission. And so this morning, uh, I have the opportunity, many pastors would dread this and wouldn't call it an opportunity, but I have the opportunity to ask you to renew your commitment or to begin a commitment to this church. We believe that God is doing an, an incredible thing through this place, through this church home, and we offer you the opportunity to be a part of it. I think it's biblical and healthy to make a commitment, and so as we end this year, uh, we've asked you as a congregation to consider your commitment to this church home. Most of you probably received a letter, unless you're brand new, uh, that went out earlier this month. Uh, We gave you a lot of information about our budget, about our plans, how we plan to use the money that we all give uh, for the sake of the mission, and we've challenged you to consider renewing your commitment uh, to this place for next year. So to that end, I want to put up a little bit of information for you. Um, There will be more details following in our congregational meeting in January, but this is our budget for next year. A lot of people think, Maybe funny to put a budget up on the screen in the middle of worship, but I think this is part of our worship. This is what God's called us to do, giving to, to the ministry and giving to the mission. Um, we spend our money really in three ways. Uh, we're a worshiping church, we're a discipleship-based church, and we're a missional church. And then our fourth team is our operations team, which largely supports the work of those three areas and what God has called us to do. So that's just a very broad budget. I do want to let you know that this, this year, this calendar year, we did a full financial audit uh, of our organization. I believe that we're close or already have the results on that and everything looks good. Uh, we're totally open and transparent about how we spend money. So if you would like a more detailed version of how we spend our money, we would be glad to give you that uh, and show you how we have tried to steward the resources God has given us. So as we come to this time of commitment at the end of the year, there's two quick challenges that we have for you. The first one is we want to challenge you to be a regular giver. Uh, We know that the local church is not the only place uh, that God calls you to give, and we're fine with that. We celebrate that, but if this is your church home, uh, we believe that this should be a substantial part of your giving. I believe this is the place where you're most connected to what God is doing in the world, and I believe that God is doing great work through this church. So we want to encourage you to take the opportunity to be a regular giver. And then as we finish this year, we want to encourage you prayerfully to consider giving an extra year-end gift. Uh, This is not something I had ever done until a few years ago uh, at the Kirk when we challenged the congregation to do it. And I thought if we're going to ask people to do it, I'd better do it. Uh, And so I've done it every year. And I think it's just a way at the end of the year to thank God for his faithfulness, um, to to give year-end gifts to, to a number of organizations that are doing great gospel work and work in our city. 
uh, but also to give a year-end gift here at the Kirk so we can finish the year strong. Uh, the budget that I showed you is not the final budget. It kind of depends on how we finish the year. Uh, we'll present our final budget again in January at our meeting. I uh, just want to give you an idea of where we are at. So as we come to a close this morning, I just want to remind you that we don't give to a budget. It's bigger than that. We give to a mission. We believe that God has called us to be a part of the greatest mission on planet Earth, and that is to be a part of God's mission to see the good news go to the ends of the earth. And so we actually have a brand new mission statement that we are rolling out today, kind of a soft launch. We're going to have a series coming up in January. We're going to go into more details on what that looks like. Our mission statement has been for a number of years now, transformed by Christ to transform the world. And fundamentally what we're called to do has not changed, but here is the version that we have refreshed for what we feel God has called us to do. We are a Christ-centered community that is for you, for Tulsa, and for the world. We just, it seems like people are resonating with this idea of for, and then it should be more than just being about for Tulsa, our local missions strategy. This idea of for is we believe that we serve a God who is for you and who demonstrated that through the good news of what Christ has done for you, and therefore we as God's people want to be for you, whoever you are, for you becoming the person that God created you to be. We want to be for the place that God has called us to live and serve and worship, and we ultimately want to be about the worldwide renewal of the gospel and spreading the good news as far as we can to as many people as possible. And so this is our mission. I encourage you to participate in it at every level. Go all in with us. Commit to be a part of what God's doing here. And we're going to stand back and marvel because he will do far beyond our wildest expectations. Would you join me as we pray about this? God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of your mission. And Lord, as we read an incredibly challenging passage like this, we're reminded that we don't go all in by our own strength, but we go all in because we serve a Savior who went all in for us, who gave us his best who gave us his life in order to redeem us and save us to the uttermost. So God, I pray as we come to the end of this year that you would renew us as your people. God, that you would provide the resources that we need to accomplish your mission. And God, as we're a part of the work that you are doing in the world, would you give us incredible joy? Would you give us energy? Would you give us clarity? Would you give us a great enthusiasm and zeal for the commission that you have given us? to take your good news that has changed us and is changing the world. We love you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.